So if you woke up tomorrow and found yourself on a real-life RPG starter menu, instead of building a character, you're building yourself as an NPC in a fantasy setting to live out the rest of your life, what job would you want to have as an NPC in a real-life flesh-and-blood RPG? Quest-giving wizard. I would want to be the blacksmith that sells them the the best equipment. You know, funniest part is I didn't actually come up with my own response. (laughs) So let's just go with Hermit, I guess, and move on. Yeah, that tracks for you. Uh, Everybody else can go the fuck away, and you're just going to sit here by yourself and read your books. Welcome to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another It's a Mimic episode, where we continue our conversation on player options in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. I'm Adam, and with me today are Jeff and Tyler, and this episode is called Player Strongholds, Home is Where the Horde Is. In this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, this panel of Dungeon Masters will be discussing the ins and outs and ups and downs of building a stronghold by the book and how to make it actually interesting for both the players and the Dungeon Master. Now, before we start laying the foundation for this episode, I have to ask, have you guys ever done this in-game before? Let's grab dice. I got an 18. 14. Six. All right. Um... I have, yes, I have given out uh, strongholds in the past. I have given out keeps that they have found, that they've repaired and they've uh, built up. Um, and I've given out uh, the ability to build up a city uh, and get involved in the local economy or the kingdom. At this point, I've got a couple of campaigns that have ended and then their domains, their kingdoms have become fixtures on the map now uh, for the next campaign. So at this point, I've got the good guys camp from two campaigns ago and the bad guys camp from last campaign because it was an evil, it ended up being evil and they all died at the end and got risen. And then my current campaign is going to be teaming up with the good guys to go into the wizard's tower and the death knight's um, castle and whatnot to you know storm the bad guys and fight. But I have given these locations in the past to people uh, to varying degrees of success. It is difficult and ridiculous um, to try to get people to design a keep. They're either into it or they don't give a shit. It is an old school part of D&D that I really like, but I mean, most people now just show up for the wacky goblins. So uh, it's not it's not necessarily something that, uh, that 5th edition really spends any time on. Tyler, you were next? Yeah. I, I just realized I was just I, your last comment there that fifth edition really hasn't gone into this too much. And so I'm like, that's very true. So in long campaigns that I've run, I like to give my players a stronghold or at least some sort of home base, but I don't really go too in depth with the rules, especially to the DMG. And there's not much rules to even go by, but I do like giving kind of that stronghold to my players if it's going to be for the long haul, if it's only going to be like three or four sessions, no. But if it's something that this is a big campaign, we're going from one to 20 or one to 10, then yeah, I like giving that stronghold that players kind of help design, not completely, but they kind of have their say in it. They have their agency, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it makes it theirs, right? 
Jeff, you ever done this? Once in the first campaign I ever run, I let my players discover an old rundown fortress and clear it out to use it as a home base with a village nearby to hire people from if they wanted to. Um, at that point, though, in my DMing, I was still very much the what happens if you give a kid the keys to a toy store and DM ADDing all over the place. So it was counterproductive for me to give them a place that's a home base and then try to drag them all over the map that I was creating at the time. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, if you're going to give them a, a base, you got to spend time at it, right? Right. So before we get any deeper into this conversation, let's cut to a quick ad break and then we'll break down exactly what the options are for uh, strongholds in fifth edition and kind of the pros and cons, as well as some of the third party inspirations that we've run across. We've previously covered quite a bit in our discussion on Dungeon Master Tips in 5th Edition. For all of those episodes and more, you can follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and dozens of other podcast apps. If you would like to support us, you can donate through the website, check out our store, or join our Patreon and get access to other episodes and series. If you would like to pay for some ad space on It's a Mimic, or just send a shout out to a friend, please reach out to us through our email and website that are listed in the show notes below. So, I don't know if you guys caught it, but we released two episodes on April Fool's Day. The first was on our regular channel, and it saw Casey and Megan return to the Giant series one more time with a giant special giant special. And the other episode on our Patreon took a look at all of the constructs out there that are clearly designed around dragons. And later this week, our Patreon subscribers of Silver Tier can look forward to the next installment in our series on the False Hydra. If you're interested in becoming a subscriber, you can check the show notes below for the link. Okay, so the history of Strongholds in D&D is a long one. It is a popular one, or at least it used to be, um, and it seems to have been kind of thrown out the window in 5th edition. Uh, the idea in original D&D was, if you go way, way, way back to the early days, uh, there were wargaming uh, games that people would play, where you would have an army with a whole bunch of different figures, different figures could do different things, and you'd move them across the map against your friend's army, and they would fight, and that's kind of where D&D got its birth from, was out of that idea. Um, so what they wanted to do was have heroes, Gary Gygax wanted fantasy heroes among the um, the enemy armies um, fighting and, and winning. And when it wasn't just enough to fight on a battle map, it started to become, let's go underground and fight monsters. And that's where D&D came from. The idea is that you would get two kinds of rewards. One reward would be you would get loot. And the second reward would be you would get experience. If you do enough stuff, you get enough loot and enough experience to become super badass and be able to do bigger, better things. However, the loot doesn't really have anything to be spent on after a certain point. You upgrade your armor to the best that you can, and then everything after that is just kind of window dressing. It's just details. I have a banner. My horse's barding is now black leather or red leather instead of simple browns and grays, right? Like there's only so far you can go. So one of the things became get your castle, build your kingdom and become the next king of the land. And that was a huge theme in early Dungeons and Dragons, real early, even before uh, 3.5. And the, we're talking the early days of AD&D. Um, and even before that, with the original D&D, it was all about building your castle up, getting enough loot to be able to 
have essentially this domain that you have around you. Now, we have moved away from that for a number of reasons. We moved away from experience. And for the most part, one of the big complaints people have about fifth edition is what do I spend my loot on? Really quickly, guys, what do your players spend loot on? Like when they get gold, what what, what are they doing with it? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, uh... Yeah, it's the reward that doesn't reward at all, right? Like, well, it feels I mean, good to have that hoard, but like, what do you do with it? To be fair, both campaigns I'm running right now are Curse of Strahd, and there's not a whole lot of money to go around, and there's That's even fair. less to spend it on Emberovia. In the past, I've gone out of my way to try to leave places to spend it, but currently, nothing. <laughs> they don't spend shit. I tend to, in my campaigns, have traders that are on the road, so while they're traveling, they might encounter one of these traders that they've been at before, and they are looking for specific things. I have this idea and I tell them whether they have it or not. They're a traveling trader. They don't have everything. And so it does encourage them to keep track of the money that they do have and to be creative with it. A lot of the stuff that you get um, in the DMG and it's it's in Fizzbands as well is it's not just gold, although there's a fuck ton of it out there just lying under rocks apparently or in like orc pockets right like that's that's where you find gold you don't mine for gold anymore if you want to get rich you go check dead orc pockets hey you leave my orc pocket out of this <laughs> uh, um or <Orc> what <laughs> um but it tends to be uh at this point gems and precious works of art and stuff that you're cashing in and i'm telling you my players go through cities and towns and stuff as say, all right you have downtime what do you want to do they never look at their loot and say oh, i'm going to trade it in I'm going to cash this in for whatever the uh, they would all actually be shocked to find out that there are rules about um, trading in your swords and stuff. You don't get it as a one-to-one. You don't get the amount of money it's worth in the player's handbook for trading it in. That stuff is in the DMG. And yet we still get overloaded with gold to the point where they have it. They don't know what to do with it. And it goes in a bag of holding and that's it. That was another huge part of original D and D was well, you get all this loot, what do you do with it? You had to hire people to transport it back. You find a dragon's hoard. How much does that weigh? Yeah, how much can you actually yeah. fit in your pockets? And so that, yeah, that was a big factor. So this is why we have kind of old throwbacks, the ideas of hirelings. It's mentioned in a couple of places in the core books, but it's not really expanded upon. Uh, you have little bits and pieces of things like pack mules and whatnot. Nobody's paying attention to that shit when they're playing D&D <laughs> unless it's their first game ever. And like, I want a mule. His name will be Bill because I love Lord of the Rings, right? And that's as far as they go. Poor old Bill. Poor old well, Bill. There's also just the very common, it's a meme at this point of how many sets of horses will your adventurers forget about outside of a dungeon over the course of the campaign. I mean, you'll get some groups that are precious about their animals or whatever. And you get some groups that just forget that they've literally left a dozen horses scattered around the world for someone else to take. I mean, I think some of that is also kind of on the DM to inspire them to do these things rather than just assuming that they'll figure it out on their own because they won't. No, they, you're right. They won't. So when it comes to um, this giant like mass of wealth and it's like, look, D and D players in fifth edition are superheroes. They're too powerful. They have all of the resources. They are Captain America by level two, but by level eight, they've got Iron Man level wealth. 
it is ridiculous how superpowered they are. Um, and they're Doctor Strange by level 15. Even the marshals have shit that they're doing with magic, right? Like it's it's blown up. It is crazy the amount of power they have. And yet they're very rarely tied to anything except, you know, my sister and my backstory, who you as a DM are now tempted to kill because we run out of shit to do because they don't have anything else except their abilities and their really cool gear. And you damn well know they're going to flip a table if you take that gear away. So these resources don't really amount to much, which is why we're doing this episode now, because they should go into a stronghold. Now, a stronghold for our purposes here are just... That word is simply going to mean um, base of operations, right? It is not necessarily a fort, although that is what most people think about. Um, there are definite, definite pros and cons to it. Um, one of the pros is the fact that now they have something that they can be proud of. If you have an artist in the group, they may want to sketch this out. If you have someone who has got a low-level OCD like I do, they will sit down with graph paper and actually like show you room by room how how it's built. The cons, however, are the fact that you now have to spend time there. You as a DM have to keep track of what the layout is. And there's not a whole lot of adventure to be had in a stronghold. It's somewhere for them to dump their gear and move on, right? Uh, we really like these important things. We're just going to leave it stashed back here and then, and then off we go. Um, and why would they stash anything if they have a bag of holding? Which is why I don't hand out bags of holding anymore. I don't either. Right. I want them to have to manage that shit. I want them to potentially get it stolen. I I will go as far as to warn my players that if I give you a bag of holding, you should be worried. <laughs> because either there's something in it or someone's looking for it. There's something fucky going on. If I give you a bag of holding, you should be suspicious on a meta level. I, I do have a bag of holding in one, in one of my campaigns right now, and it's only reason I have it is because it's with the responsible person who I know is keeping track of everything in there because everyone else in the campaign wants it to do well, make things explode with it. Yeah. Look, um, I have a bag of holding in my campaign right now and uh, they just don't know that it's the bag man. <laughs> <laughs> and um, by the time this episode comes out, we're recording so far in advance. By the time this episode comes out, they will have dealt with the bag man. Um, but there are the effects of the Bagman around already. They just think that they're in like creepy haunted shit is happening while they sleep. But no, the, the Bagman is dicking with their with their gear and it's going to get real, real quick. And I'm probably going to attack Dan with it. That's I may <laughs> kidnap him. Well deserved. Yes. Um, so um, there are pros and cons to, to having a stronghold. If you're listening to this episode, um, even if... If you are playing one of the regular modules and whatnot, you should think about what a stronghold means. There are some that are really difficult to apply this to, um, like uh, Tomb of Annihilation, for example. It's hard to have a stronghold in Tomb of Annihilation. You're crawling a, through a jungle hex. You don't go back to home base in this, right? Um, when it comes to things like uh, Storm King's Thunder, you're on the road across the landscape for the majority of it. But when you've got Dragon Heist or you've got um, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, there are definitely little places that you could have that this is your base of operations. But what do we get from the, the base of operations? Um, what are the boosts that you would get? Why should players give a shit besides just spending their money for the idea of, oh, this is cool? Because I'll tell you right now, some players like Dan will get excited about it. 
some players like Megan will draw it up and sketch it and she'll be excited for two weeks and never think about it again. And some players like Dave will be like, I don't know. I mean, I guess I have a bed in the corner. Like, fuck, I'm here (laughs) to murder things. So what can we do to make them excited about it? So I turned to one of Matt Coville's books, his first one, Strongholds and Followers. Um, This is really fresh in my mind right now because I just got the hardcover for Kingdoms of Warfare. Uh, and I am so thrilled with it. And at some point, we're going to have to do an episode based on that shit. But I've been looking at Strongholds and Followers. Uh, we're going to look, obviously, at the Stronghold side of it. But I'm not going to get into the details. This is worth picking up. I'm not going to say anything else about it. I don't want to spoil the bits and pieces for it. I just want to say this is worth picking up for the mechanics in it. Because he has a couple of basic ideas about how a stronghold should work with your party. So I'm going to kind of summarize them really quick, and then you should go check out his details. We're going to take his kind of infrastructure and and build on that ourselves. Regardless of the kind of stronghold, he says, it should impact the surrounding area in a dramatic and sometimes mechanical way. If you establish a new building or you take the ruins and you make them functional again, the surrounding landscape should definitely be impacted. Not only the denizens that are there, but also the landscape itself. If the old mill starts working again, what does that do to the waterways nearby? There are some things to think about like that. And you can actually, if you're a crafty DM, build plot hooks into it. Anytime that there's a new civilized feature on a map in a medieval fantasy campaign, people will go to it. Good people and bad people. The surrounding area is known as a domain. Uh, in the book. And it's not a domain uh, like in English. It is, I want to say French, it's D-E-M-E-S-N-E, a domain. Um, And that just, it just means the surrounding area. And he talks quite a bit about the different effects that it can have. Another thing that he says is that it can improve class features, which means depending on the kind of stronghold you have, for example, if you uh, are starting to build up the barracks in a castle, your fighter should be able to do more better things because he is now working with a better training facility in his downtime. If a wizard gets a tower, they should get access to more spells, shit like that. Also, there's a lot of talk in it about NPCs that will come uh, with you with quests or plot hooks or favors or gifts. Uh, they may want to become denizens uh, of your area every uh, every mansion needs to have a butler, right? And so there, this is things that you can do when you adopt the goblin, but the next quest is too, too dangerous to take the goblin with you. You now have somewhere safe to stash them. And the DM can come up with what the goblin is doing or what they've been doing when you get back from your quest. And you can see that either they have smeared poop on the you know bottom three feet of every wall, or uh, they have gotten super attached to the, pet chicken in the back and that that's based on a true story my campaign that the goblet had a pet chicken his name was mr box because he goes bok 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 and then he kept accidentally killing the chicken so he would get a new mr box and we were on mr box number 14 i think by the end of the campaign my mind immediately went to gonzo <laughs> yeah uh that is a special kind of love between a uh monster and chicken we, we oh, what was your name camilla there yeah. we go yeah um so it, it goes through different um, different kinds of strongholds um, that you can have there. And it goes into uh, keeps, 
and towers and hold on i wrote it all down the day we get to a point where you haven't written it all down for one of these is the day this podcast dies pretty much all right here we go i got my notes in front of me um so the first one that he talks about is a keep and it's all about how you're able to train up npcs and other units now i'm not big on on the warfare mechanics that he has in uh, his book. I think they're phenomenal. I don't think they're my version of D and D. Yeah. And look, they function. It is a great mini game. If you're interested in doing warfare, check it out. It, he's got great ideas about it, um, but you can train NPCs or you can train your PCs up in, cer- in certain ways. And then it has a couple of different options for that. Um, like a barbarian camp, it doesn't have to be a keep, it could be a camp, or even a pirate ship. Note to Brad, who's probably listening to this, you're doing a pirate campaign in Dan's, uh, and Dan is DMing it for you, get bonuses from your pirate ship. Another option he talks about is a wizard's tower. He talks about how you can do spell research there and even invent new spells. This is something that I think all wizards should be doing after they reach level, I don't know, seven is start working on on building new spells mordenkainen's magnificent mansion bigby's uh what was the bigby's bigby's hand bigby's hand i keep thinking there's a second word in there because there's tensors floating disc doesn't and, start with a j yeah <laughs> uh, there's tasha's hideous laughter there are all of these personalized spells why is your wizard not doing the next one right so come up with how you want to do it or casting spells in different ways. There are all these useful D8 charts about special effects of spells that are kind of a little bit like metamagic um, that you could research in a tower and the tower will give you one of these effects. Uh, and then if you want a different effect, you would build another tower or you would you know, change your research and give up one boon for another one. There's a decent map for what a tower looks like. I think it's a four or five level tower. But I mean, if your wizard does, is not in a 38 level tower, that looks like it's three stories tall or if it's not floating in the air or other weird shit, like you can get really unique with wizards towers. And we've talked about that in, I want to say the third wizards episode we did. Um, If you're not doing that, you're missing out. You should get a tower and it should reflect the school of magic that you, um, that you study and you should get special boons from doing that. Um, They also talk about temples. Now temples in this book, has a mechanic called concordance it's very similar to piety that we get in theros so the way concordance works is it's essentially a sliding scale on how happy or pissed off your deity is with your efforts on a daily basis so the dm essentially keeps score and then when you get enough you can ask for a favor from the gods you roll on a table about what kind of favor it is and you may get it you may not you may get smacked for interrupting your god in the first place um but there's a lot of fun little charts about the different things that will impress or piss off uh, the god and how to interact with uh, you can go hunting enemy priests of other gods if you desecrate the holy area of a of an enemy god that gets you special points and shit like that Um, so there's a whole little mechanic in there about it they also talk about bonus npcs that are sent to you by your god depending on your concordance so depending on your temple and who you worship, you might get a fey or a celestial, an elemental aberration, construct, demon, devil, or undead that come to reside at your temple and give you extra bonuses. If you pray to one of the nature gods, 
and a satyr shows up and says, yep, God, this God sent me. Here we go. I, I live here now. Now you have a satyr to take care of your, uh, your temple out here in the woods. And that could be good or bad. You may come home to orgies. And it's someone who's done that. That's a, it's, a, it's always a shock. It's always a shock. Let me tell you. This is why I don't hang out with Dan anymore. Um, they also give you uh, an option. The loneliest orgy ever. The loneliest orgy. It's just him. <laughs> I was testing out my furniture and I couldn't get out. Help. Mary Palmer and her five sisters. <laughs> Um, it also mentions the fact that you can do a druid grove. Now you see, we had a barbarian camp with the keep and a druid grove with a temple. So he's starting to think about the classes, right? And how it will impact different players. Uh, the final kind of stronghold that he mentions is an establishment. This is going to be something like a tavern, right? Or a trading post or a guild business. house. Yeah, this is a business. It's somewhere where you can get secondary income, but it's also somewhere where you can collect intel and rumors. Um, and the uh, idea here is that this is going to tie you to a city or a town or a community a lot tighter. The example that he gives is a theater, which I think would be great for bards. Um, regardless of the kind of stronghold, though, he does say that it needs to impact the surrounding area. And we really do have to think about how a theater popping up in a town or a uh, barbarian camp out on the plains, or a pirate ship, or a wizard's tower. How does this affect the landscape? What roads will be built? What um, what populations will either be drawn to or get pushed away from certain areas? And so I was starting to get really, really uh, inspired going through this list and trying to come up with my own idea of uh, of what the different classes would be looking for from different kind of um, of strongholds. And I discovered he actually has uh, a whole section in the book laying it all out. And we're not going to get into the details, the ins and outs, but he gives us a barbarian camp, a bard's theater, a cleric's church, a druid's grove, a fighter's fortress, a monk's, can you guess, m m monastery, a paladin's chapel. So, I mean, he's old school like I am. He ties paladins to divine magic really closely. Um, They're holy avengers, not just knights. Um, so Paladin's Chapel, there's a Ranger's Lodge, a Rogue's Tavern, a Sorcerer's Sanctum, a Warlock's Fane, and a Fane, F-A-N-E, if you don't know, is an altar or a shrine. Here you go. It's another fun word that you can add to your repertoire uh, for, you know, when you fight the 10,000 cultists that are in every single D&D campaign. Um, and then there's also the Wizard's Library. This book came out before, I think, Eberron did, or at least he didn't. Think about the artificer, but I mean, clearly the artificer has a workshop. Like that's that you don't have to go too far in that one. So I'll have a couple of questions for you guys because I've monologued here for a bit. Um, let's grab our dice and roll initiative um, because I want to get your thoughts on how to use strongholds and what to look out for from a DM standpoint when your player comes to you with this. Let's roll. One. I got a three. Ten. Okay, well, Jeff, you're first with a 10, so... Oh, goody. Yep. Um, are there any downsides you can think of for awarding a stronghold? I think the one that... I'll just, I'll refer back to the one I referred... Wow. Department of Redundancy Department. Yep. I'll call back to the one I mentioned earlier in my own first, very first campaign. If you're planning for your campaign to range far and wide and your characters in the campaign are not high enough level to teleport... Uh, Stronghold can either tie you down to a location that you're not wanting to stay near, 
or it can feel like a worthless reward if your players never actually get to go there. That makes total sense, yeah, because they're either going to love it or they're going to forget about it. Like they do with most loot, right? But this is why I like the idea of boons, because if there is a boon there, they're going to feel it when all of a sudden they don't get that bonus anymore. If the fighter's got a training camp, and as long as he runs a training camp, it's in his name, and he's got um, all of these people that are are training him or he's training others and that, you know, teaching gives you additional insights into subjects. Um, and then all of a sudden he goes off adventuring and he's got this extra attack because of this, or he gets a plus three modifier to pull arm attacks. And, and suddenly you turn to him and say, you can no longer do this. Now he's worried about what happened to the training camp. My mind immediately goes back to like uh, the well-rested mechanic from Skyrim or Fallout where if you sleep a number of hours in a bed, you get a perk. Yeah. Which then, you know, if you are away from your stronghold more than a certain number of days, you have to go back there to re-up your buff. Yeah, I like that too. I mean, having the um, the time limit or the number of uses, uh, if for every week you spend there, you get, uh, you know, the bard will get a free inspiration die every for every week he spends at his bard's theater, right? Um, I think that's a really good way of looking at it, that this is a way to reward um, your players for making player choices that aren't just, what do I do in combat, um, which is rare. Uh, the other downside that I have, though, is that if I have a party of five players, I'm going to have to come up with a Bard's Theater, a Cleric's Church, a Monk's Monastery, a Rogue's Tavern, and a Wizard's Library. And that's a lot of places on a map, I mean, unless I'm in a city. Right. I'm I'm gonna have some issue with this. Right. No, definitely. Yeah. It actually ties into mine. It's just the idea of both on the DM side as well as players, it's more to manage. And you have to question, is it worth it in the campaign you're currently in? Yeah. Is it is it only gonna be 10 sessions? Is it worth it? Or is it gonna go longer? Do I want to invest the time into it? Does the DM want to invest their time into again? Even if the players come up with it, the DM has to, as you said before, Adam, they have to make a floor plan. They have to make, what does this look like? Is it worth it? I, and that really gets into the thought process before you get into this at all, which is, is this something that's right for this group of people? If it's not, maybe don't get into it. If it's something you don't think your players will think is fun or will care about, why put the extra effort in if it's not particularly compelling for your group of people? That's why you got to sell it to them. Yeah, and there's a couple of decent ways of selling it. You guys are absolutely right that it's not for everybody. I wouldn't even really think about um, handing out a stronghold until about level eight. And even then, I would, you know, dangle the idea in front of them and see who bites. But I'm not going to give it to them until they're tier three. Right. Um, the level two character that owns his own establishment is just annoying um, at, <laughs> at best. Uh, so... Do you guys have any other insights um, about DMing for players that want a stronghold? If they come to you and say, hey, I want to do this. I listened to this amazing episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, and I got inspired. Now I want my own stronghold. Um, what do you say to them? Tough shit, noob. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Find a different podcast. Fuck. <laughs> Find a different DM. No, um, I don't know that I have anything specific for this, except for... If there is something that your 
whether it's something you've done before or not, whether it's something you're experienced at as a DM or not, if your players come up to you with something that they seem to be curious and engaged and interested by, dig deeper, find more, uh, learn, push yourself as a DM if it's going to make your players happy. Um, so even if you're in the position like myself where I've only done it once, I haven't found a need to do it again. If one of my Strad players comes up to me and says, hey, I think I want to take that place that we cleared out a few sessions ago and hire some of the townspeople to make it a fortress. If it's something that's going to engage your players and make them happy, push yourself a little out of your comfort zone and give it a shot. What do you have to lose? I agree with you uh, 100%. The big thing that I would say is um, if they're on the fence, like, I'm kind of interested. I don't know how it's going to work or I want to do this, but you can't see an obvious way in right away. Think about the fact that almost every single one of these um, uh, especially the class ones that they give the barbarian camp, the clerics church, the fighters fortress, um, the paladins chapel, for example, they all come with a promotion as well. You're not, you're not a private or a, a corporal who's running their own training camp, right? At that point, you're a, a captain or a major or a general in an army, right? The idea of being knighted or of getting access to be able to, uh, you don't get to join the Thieves Guild until you successfully run a guild house. Things like that means that you're going to have plot hooks and you're going to be able to dangle the idea of these plot hooks in front of them that are not necessarily tied to the stronghold itself, but the stronghold will help unlock that. And just remember, anytime that you knight anybody, that comes with lands and titles, right? So they will automatically get land. They will automatically get something there for them to build on. If not just here, you were given a castle. We do that in Game of Thrones all the time. I think Casterly Rock changed hands like 40 fucking times in that series, which was always funny and usually a bad omen um, for the person that gets it. But I thought that I, I keep thinking about, oh, I'm playing a paladin. What do I want out of this? I'm, you want to be a knight, right? That's the thing. You want to be sir or lady, whatever your your name is. And the fact that you don't get land automatically with that in fifth edition is odd to me. That's part of the shit that you get in, in original D&D, right? Is you would get knighted. That's part of it. And then you will become king. And that's part of it. You don't get to own a palace if you are not a king. All I've ever wanted is serfs, Adam. Well, that the problem with that is the surfs up rising. <laughs> I would say one of the biggest things for insights about DMing players is listen to your players. What you were saying, Jeff, before is this idea of if they're showing interest, look into it at the very least. Listen to what your players are saying and don't listen to just that one player who's giving all the ideas. Try and encourage everyone else to kind of share to to listen to what everyone else is saying and put it together in that way which to be honest is repackaging rule number one of being a good dm listen if you want to know what to do next listen to your players so did you say something jeff <laughs> um <Get out. laughs> do you guys have any just talking about generic strongholds without going into any of the classes themselves do you guys have any insights about the kind of bonus a mechanical boon that you might give to players just for becoming an owner of a stronghold. Not just you're, you now have this title, but a mechanical bonus that you would think, I would investigate this kind of thing. For example, um, a wizard who has his own tower gets an additional spell or two to his list. Do you have anything, Jeff, off the top of your head? The first thing that comes to mind for me may not be a direct 
benefit to the character sheet so much. But if you're going to, as a player or a group of players, have a fort or a town or a stronghold of some kind, you're going to gain notoriety, uh, hopefully good. Uh, you're going to gain recognition and reputation. And my initial first thought is that people are going to be more likely to help you when you walk in nearby settlements or towns. Uh, people are going to be more likely to be generous and um, you know, potentially that could reflect itself in better prices in nearby shops. Um, lower DCs or advantage on persuasion checks when you're talking to people, trying to learn information from the people that live near your stronghold. My, that's where my first thought goes is how it would affect your interactions with anybody that lives within rumor shot of your stronghold. I really like that. One of the things uh, my answer would be, let's say that you guys have all built your characters and you're all from scrappy little backgrounds, you're all urchins and hermits and outlanders because that's what people like to play. Um, and then you end up having something like a mansion that you end up getting. You, you're in Curse of Strahd. You've been dicking around in the world for the last year and a half. And I mean, the Burgomaster's mansion is sitting empty in the village of Barovia, right? You go back and you reclaim that for yourself. I would give you the opportunity to at any point swap back and forth between the background bonuses that a noble gets and the background bonus that you had originally. If you can spend a night, if you get a long rest in at this mansion, you can swap your background until you want to do it, until you want to swap it back. I like that. That's really cool. I do like that. One that's just super simple for mine, it's the idea of if you have a long rest in your stronghold, whatever it is, you get an extra temporary hit dice after taking that long rest. I like that too. So it adds, it's it's not something you can get anywhere else. It has to be in your stronghold. If you take a long, it's kind of along the lines of the well-rested perk, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Uh, the idea, especially if you're going to run with the gritty rules, the grimdark rule set for rests and whatnot, where it takes a week to get a long rest, I would really start looking at the idea of benefits for daily rests as well. Those, you know, every day you get a short rest, I would start thinking about boosting that up if you can get a decent bed to sleep in. Um, I, at this point, I'm starting to homebrew a lot of rest mechanics as well because I find them boring as fuck in fifth edition. Um, and nobody pays attention to them anyway. Everybody likes to blow their hit dice. Who recharges them properly <laughs> on a long rest? Yeah. So um, now there were a number of, um, of strongholds that were actually listed in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, Jeff, do you have the list in front of you? Uh, I think so. There is, it's yeah. one of the downtime activities. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Um, do you want to break down what this downtime activity looks like? Because it's about building a stronghold, right? Not just running yeah. it, but building it. Right. So the DMG gives us some basic, like top level guidelines on how to build a stronghold and details some of the considerations you'd need to make for this as a downtime activity. The first step on the path is acquiring the land itself. Uh, the plot of land your players build on will need to have some kind of documentation proving ownership and custodianship, generally granted in the form of a charter, a land grant, or a deed. Inheritance can also come into play, depending on the character's backstory, whether it's one they handed you or one you made up for them. Surprise, rich dad <laughs> that died. Uh, the biggest thing to keep in mind is that usually this land falls within a country or a territory of a government or a 
higher up lord or a monarch of some kind and they'll need permission from whoever this might be if they don't want trouble from johnny law uh land can be granted as a reward for services rendered to a lord or a monarch land can be purchased from an existing landowner with example prices given in the book from 100 to 1000 gold for a small estate up to 5000 gold plus for a large estate um it does also mention that some land cannot be purchased for any price which amuses me uh once your land has been procured the next thing to think about is going to be building materials how you're going to source them who's going to build this you're going to need workers laborers um as far as building whatever structure or structures you have in mind but the assumption being made that your player characters are overseeing the work of skilled laborers, not building it themselves. Um, it also mentions that should the PCs leave to do some adventuring during construction, that build time increases by three days for every day spent away from the project. Speaking as a construction worker myself, pressure gets the job done faster. Okay. Do you have any thoughts about this overall? The I, I agree. If you don't have the pressure on... I've worked in the trades enough to know that um, when the cat is away, the mice will fuck the dog. No, it's true. And I find that I'll, with all the adventuring that happens, here's a question, actually, now that it just pops in my head. How often are in your sessions one player is not able to make it? Now, would that rule apply if we said, for example, or if they said, I'm not able to make it to this session. Can we say my character is currently overseeing the construction of such and such? I mean, absolutely. As long as you're within, you know, a day or two's travel of the whatever. If you were halfway through uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Oh, gosh, no. Yeah, right. So, like, within context, yes. Um, I have Dave as one of my players in my main D&D group on Sundays. And he goes, like, it's hunting season right now. I won't see him for three months. We are always looking for excuses for why he's not at sessions because he is he's hunting he, or he is out camping or he is just being a beastly son of a bitch he out there in the wrong time uh he should not have been born at all in my opinion but moon <laughs> i think that you are absolutely right tyler the um the idea of being away from the party to go back and to check on something and it's it's easy enough to just say a raven landed while you know we were taking our long rest and there was a message attached to its foot i had to go back to deal with the thing yeah and it gives a reason why the character is not there which as dms we're consistently trying to find ways to not have to play that character when they're not there i i never do any of that shit no you just you just dungeon flu yeah, dungeon flu. <laughs> if they're not there, they cease to exist and everyone forgets about them. But when they come back, everyone seems to not notice that they were ever gone. Tyler, how do you deal with that, with the <laughs> absences at the table? The way I deal with absences at the table is if they tell me ahead of time that they're not going to be available, then I usually will say, okay, they're just doing on, an, on another mission for whatever stronghold they're part of. If it's not something they own, if it's they're part of like a guild, they're just off on another mission. Or if it's in the middle of something they're doing, then I'm just the bare minimum of just role playing that character. And when I say bare minimum, it's just as simple as, oh, they get into a fight. Oh, let me roll initiative for this character. Oh, shoot. He was knocked unconscious. Oh, no. I, I do one of the one or two things. One is I see I always have NPCs around and 
the players can almost guarantee that they are on an escort mission of some sort all of the time. The number of times that they have walked out from camp, just the players is uh, you could probably count that on one hand um, for me because there's like for an entire campaign, because there are always NPCs around and they usually need to get to a location and they are woefully underprepared to do it. So there's a certain amount of uh, resource management involved. And when someone's away, they are guarding that person when a fight breaks out. Mm, yeah. Right. Uh, if there isn't anybody, um, for example, I had uh, Megan was away one day um, a couple of months ago and she's a monk and her whole character arc is that she has to accept every fight challenge that comes to her. She will not back down. So they got ambushed by a bunch of, um, you know, bad guys. One of the bad guys ran up and uh, I just tied that bad guy up with Megan's character. Everybody else was doing the combat. And when it got to her point in, in initiative, it was simply she is holding her own, but not able to end this combat without help. And that was it. So it tied up Megan and it tied up that extra minion that I threw onto the battlefield because I knew she was going to be away. I, it was originally seven goblins. Now it's eight. And one of them is sparring off against Megan in the corner until someone comes over and kills the eighth one, which has two hit points left because Megan did such a good job fighting. Right. Good job, like, Megan. Yeah, it's enough to keep her in the narrative um, so that she can, when she gets the recap later, she'll have an opinion. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, anyway, back to back to strongholds. There's a, <laughs> there's a list of strongholds uh, in the DMG uh, with this downtime activity, and they all come with construction costs and construction times. Um, oh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's a little egregious in some places. It really is. Uh, Tyler, can you walk us through the list, starting from like, I don't know, the cheapest to the most expensive, I guess? Sure, of course, yeah. So I'm going to kind of group them together in ways of how much they cost and the amount of time. Sure. So the first two are the Guild Hall, and that can be either in a town or a city, doesn't matter, and the, or the Trading Post. Both of them cost 5,000 gold pieces, which seems like a lot, but when you think of how much gold your party accrues don't seem as much but it does take 60 days to build now keep in mind that 60 days is supervised 60 days like what we we're talking about that grows bigger if your characters are not there to supervise so so that's six months without supervision yep the next two um but i i could say the first two for the guild hall and the trading post this seems kind of fair though they're not that big of buildings but they're still pretty impactful uh for the next two which is going to be the outpost or the fort is one or a fortified tower and both of those are instead of five thousand it's now fifteen thousand gold pieces and it takes a hundred days to build so you can kind of get an idea of how it's kind of getting bigger and bigger. That's that's a full year then unsupervised to build one of these. Yep. Maybe go to the Feywilds for a little bit, see what happens. <laughs> Your tower's 90 stories tall. You were gone for five minutes. <laughs> they just never stopped building because no one told them to stop. <laughs> exactly. This is why you this is why you don't hire Modrons. <laughs> uh, the next one is the noble estate with a manor. And this one is it's the only one that costs. It's 25,000 gold pieces and it's 150 days. This kind of makes sense because if it's a noble estate, it, this is your mansion. This is 
that one that you might find that's derelict or that has been abandoned, but it's huge. Well, at one point it was new. That's what this is. Well, hold on. I got to pause you a sec because I got to ask. These are not rebuild or repair prices. These are built nope. from ground up, right? Correct. Right. This is ground up. So, I mean, this is you're laying the foundation in, in brickwork ahead of time, right? And stonework for, for this stuff. Or you are you're carving out that estate, the estate lands or whatnot, and putting up a cast iron fence around the outside. Like all of that's part of this, right? And when I look at the amount of days that it takes to do that, I'm like, these guys are efficient. I've been in the construction business. That's efficient to build that big of a thing in 150 days. Oh boy. That's a lot of guys. Well, yeah. yeah, And I'm sitting here looking at it and the guild hall and trading post to me, both feel like they're one story buildings. Yeah. The uh, outpost slash fort or the tower seems like it's multiple levels, but it's simplistic. Now we're getting multiple levels and it's ornate, right? Exactly. Right. Especially now when you get to the next tier, feels like I'm selling something. That's the ground level. Next one you have is this. No, the next three. It's a stronghold scheme. It is. (laughs) (laughs) How much is it going to cost to build a pyramid? There we go. (laughs) Well, you should ask the trading post, guys. I don't know. So the next set is the abbey. There's also a keep or a small castle or a temple. And all three of them cost 50,000 gold pieces. This is where it majorly steps up. That's twice as the amount, but think of the size of each of these buildings. The other, he- sorry, the other thing about these are um, unlike the noble estate uh, or the manor that's on the noble estate, all three of these, the abbey, the small castle or the temple, they're all brick. They're all meant to withstand a siege, whereas a manor won't, right? Yeah. And also to think of it this way is those three, the abbey, the uh, keep and the temple usually are going to be occupying more people than the than the previous ones. Sure, you'll have hired servants in the noble estate, in the trading post and guild hall. Sure, you'll have people that are manning stations there. But the in the abbey and the keep and the temple, this is a more centralized location for people to gather. This is where people come. And here's the other thing: not only does Gross. it cost, <laughs> yes. Not only does it cost 50,000 gold pieces, but it takes 400 days to build. So that's four, that's four years unsupervised. Yep. How many D&D campaigns last 400 days? Uh, I'm, yeah, be surprised. I'm on year 70 across three campaigns, but I do time <laughs> jumps. And that's kind of something I want to I want to mention here in a second. Well, and just generally using downtime in the first place, which some DMs don't do and some do a lot. And that's the thing, yeah. Or there's someone who visit the Feywild, as we said earlier. Anyway. <laughs> the last one, and this is the biggest by far, is a palace or a large castle. This is the biggest you can go, the massive. It is 500,000 gold pieces that it's, you're paying for the price of a kingdom, and it takes 1,200 days. That's 12 years unsupervised. Think like Versailles. Yeah. (laughs) That is a massive amount of of time and resources that you are putting towards this. There there are two small things I would like to point out as I'm thinking about this. The first one, if we go all the way back to the beginning to a guild hall or a trading post, 
5,000 gold costs. It's, I believe in the player's handbook that the cost to hire a skilled laborer is two gold per day. Oh yeah. So what that means is that like to give the scale of wealth of an adventurer compared to a skilled laborer, like a blacksmith, it would take a skilled laborer by that figure six and a half years to save enough gold. If they spent it on nothing else to build a trade post for themselves. Most of them will not be able to do that in their entire lifetimes because of how much it costs just to live. That's also true. Yeah, absolutely. The other side of the point I was going to make in addition is related. If any of these figures sound completely out of the realm of possibility for your player characters, give them more gold. Some DMs love showering their players with gold. Some are really stingy. If they get to the beginning of tier three and they can't even think about building a guild hall, give them more reward for their earnings. Yeah. Um, So real quick, just a couple of thoughts off the top of my head. I just want to know if you guys agree with me on this or not. Um, If I'm going to come across a dilapidated version of any one of these, um, for example, uh, a burned, a half burned down trading post or the temple that's fallen into disrepair, um, I'm going to look at, I'm going to ballpark basically a percentage of how much of it is still standing. Yeah. And then I will adjust the percentage of the cost and time from there. Agreed. Um, I'm also going to give bonuses for things that are clearly artisans. Um, for example, if I have stone giants that have been hired to help um, build a castle or dwarves or gnomes, or if there is an artificer guild that's nearby that is going to be able to help. If you just have all of those kobolds following you around and there's just like a little civilization of kobolds that are worshiping your dragonborn, then you can put them to work. And I would count these as better than skilled laborers because these are experts in crafting. And so I would also look at that as well. Um, and cut down construction time, but also potentially increase costs. Yes. And that was kind of my next, my next point is that there would have to be a greater reward for it. It doesn't have to be uh, necessarily more monetary rewards. For example, the kobolds will then get a couple of shields made out of dragon scales. That's going to be worth a lot less than uh, than 500,000 gold pieces. Um, but it means that they get a couple of scale shield warriors out of them, right? Like I, I would think about the trade-off that they want. Uh, a couple of shiny, sparkly, large gems might be enough to coerce the dwarves to work for a little bit cheaper. Right. So you got to think about also the nature of the trade off as well. Um, And sure, gold, yes, let's make it simple and have one base currency. But if there's clearly a thing that they want, I I would get it for them. Or maybe that is a side quest that you can send your players off to go do so that, hey, all of these dwarves are going to build our keep and they're going to do it at regular cost and regular speed. Um, with these bonuses, because we're going to go clear out the orcs that moved into their stronghold. So that's mutually beneficial, right? So I'm starting to look at more of the social impact and the um, what's happening in the, the kingdoms and the landscapes around me, uh, because now you have allies to the east, right? And that's something to keep in mind as well. And just generally giving you more plot hook potential built right into it. Well, and that's why I really like Strongholds, is it's rife with uh, with plot hook, um, not the least of which, and I mean, I think it goes without saying, at some point you've got to defend it. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. As right? a DM, that's the reason I want to give them a Stronghold, is so that I can make them defend it later. 
So there's a thing that I want to do, and I don't know what if I'm going to do this as a series of one shots or a thought exercise with players over a couple of weekends or what it is, but I'm going to uh, give everybody kobold stats and figure out how many kobolds it takes to complete the tomb of horror. Oh, well, there'd be a light bulb involved because then you could say how many kobolds does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> um, the answer is zero. They can't reach. Uh. Um, I mean, they can if they stand on top of each other, though. How many kobold in a trench coat jokes have we heard? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I really like the idea of then me running as a DM a bunch of monsters charging in and they run their dungeon. You guys know the army's coming booby trap the layout, right? Um, you have a certain number of days and a certain number of materials. And these NPCs you've gotten, maybe this is what I do as my set piece at the very end is a siege of your castle. Yeah. And so once the campaign is done, now all of those enemies, all those guilds and cults and and all of the assassins and the gnolls and everybody else have been teaming up in the background and they're going to storm your location. Particularly if through the course of your campaign, your players have been hiring the best carpenters and armorers and the best of, you know, different crafts and trades as, you know, permanent residents of the whatever community they may have built around this castle. If they have a team of craftspeople, and then you give them an opportunity to let those craftspeople build ballistas and trebuchets and all kinds of traps and cool stuff, it just makes the buildup of all the work they put in to find all these skilled laborers feel like it was worth it. Because if I hadn't done this, I might not have had anyone that could build all the ballistas that took the giants out of the front line of that battle we had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, let's grab dice. I want to roll again because I have a couple of questions now that we've gone through this list of the of what you can build. I got a three again. Eleven. Six. Tyler, you can't roll for shit today. Nope. Um, Jeff, you're first again. Aren't you happy? It's sure. <laughs> um, I want to go through the list again really quickly, um, kind of item by item, and apply some kind of homebrew details or impacts or boons, even if you wanted, or bonuses uh, that PCs uh, might get from successfully running each of these specific strongholds or the impact that it might have on the area um, around them, that kind of thing. So how does this impact your game by giving each one of these strongholds? So what was the first one there, Tyler, that you had? Uh, guild hall. Guild hall. Jeff? Well, guild halls I typically associate with skilled trades, whether that trade be thieving or masonry or adventuring. I would associate, you know, if they're running a guild hall of a particular guild, that's going to give them easier access to information. So the, the types of information that that guild might come across. Tyler, what, what are your thoughts? My thoughts on this, uh, a great boon would be just this idea of they'd have the benefits of the spell aid for 24 hours. Yeah, that's a that's a really cool idea, especially if you've got somebody, uh, a spellcaster that lives permanently at the... Uh, exactly. It's the this idea that there's people there that are currently working there that are helping you. So for um, the next 24 hours since you visit there... Yeah, one of the things that I th I'm thinking about is how this is going to impact the surrounding area um, and where you would get your bonuses socially. So you're going to see things like banners and postings for your guild hall um, all over the place at like crossroads and marketplaces and taverns. So you're going to get a certain amount of uh, notoriety. So you're going to get 
bonuses on persuasion and um uh and people will have heard of you ahead of time if you are a mercenary guild you get a persuasion oh we've we've heard of your guild your intimidation gets a plus two right what's the next one uh so the next one is the trading post uh, so for the trading post my thought for that is going to be you're going to meet merchants traveling merchants that bring rarer goods uh access to things you wouldn't be able to get in this region without running a trading post here yeah you're gonna have a lot of people coming and going right and so there's gonna be mithril may come through especially when you're higher levels where it normally wouldn't in this region right and you'll gain notoriety from other people yeah tyler do you have any yeah absolutely so i was thinking uh, you they would the the group would have advantage on charisma based checks with vendors in the city now keep in mind these are charisma charisma based checks, not saving throws. So they're trying to barter, whether it's persuasion or any other way that is using charisma stat modifier, they get advantage because they own the trading outpost or the trading post. I would even say that they might get it for insight as well when it comes to to haggling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm again thinking about the surrounding area for a trading post. Um, it's not necessarily out in the wilderness. You know, this is also your general store, right? Um, so I'm thinking about the uh, quality of life and the increased wealth in the area. If you've got a small village without a proper trading post in it, it's going to stay a village. If you guys move in and, you know, open up a general store and a trading post, that road will get wider. It will start to become paved. There will be more money coming in. There will be a tavern that crops up and then another tavern across the way. There will be um, hotels. People will start to stay longer. People will move here to make a living. And this village will become a town eventually um, because that's what happens in real life. When uh, you look all the way across Canada, I mean, probably parts of the States too, but Canada is so big and there are so few people here that you can tell like every three or four hours drive down the highway, there's another weird little like cropping up of businesses and truck stops and small houses tucked in behind because this is where people stop and these communities start to grow a little bit just because you're on a main route. I mean, that's the mythos of the American Route 66. Is that right what it there. is? I mean, it's the before the freeways uh, were built, that was like the easiest route to get from coast to coast. So you've got all the settlements, towns built along that route, specifically for people driving from one part of this, one side of the country to the other. I didn't know that. I, I know it's famous, but I didn't really know why. It's... Disney taught us that. <laughs> Did they? Which, which Disney? Cars. Cars. The the Pixar movie that I'm the least familiar with. Well, classic <laughs> Pixar. I don't I don't really watch cartoons these days. Anyway, what's uh, what's next, Tyler, on the list? So the next one is the outpost or the fort. So for an outpost or a fort, I would imagine you're going to run into local trappers and hunters. You're going to be able to make connections or have interactions with nomadic tribes and hear interesting information about wilder parts of the landscape that you may not have been able to hear about if you didn't have connections with people of the land outside this outpost. That's good. I like that. Uh, for mine, it's, I thought it'd be a little, I want to be a little interesting here. And my idea is, that they gain the benefits of the aura of protection when they're within the region. So that's the, from the paladin. And that's essentially, uh, it says whenever a friendly creature is within 10 feet, uh, that way you must make a saving throw, you're able to add your charisma modifier to it. So maybe maybe I'd change it to a con modifier 
you know, because it's a little bit more about survival. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also least likely to be dumped by your characters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would really suck if you give the whole group a bonus to their, you know, all their saves to their charisma and the one guy playing a barbarian is like, oh, shit. Does that mean I get a minus two? Yeah. <laughs> Better um, than a minus three. Yeah, I, when I'm looking at an outpost, I'm thinking about... Um, now you are out in the wilderness, right? There, you are surrounded by more of the wildlands, or at least you're at the outskirts of the uh, civilized region, um, the settled areas. So you have to think about the idea that there are probably a r- reasons why this popped up here. Look for natural defenses, a large river behind you. I think about Helm's Deep built into the side of a cliff, right? Like there are going to be these kind of ideas, but maybe you're at the top of the hill, like... Um, uh, the kingdom in Rohan, right? So you can see in all directions. These are the places where I would have an outpost or or a fort, but I'm also going to have more roads. There's going to be perimeter walls just so that it's going to force people to come along the roads. And I'm also thinking that one of the bonuses is there's not going to be wild animals within, I don't know, six miles of the fort. The animals will just know, don't come here. You will be hunted. There are too many I was going to say humans, but I mean, God knows with in D&D, there are too many of the intelligent creatures that are running about here, putting their civilized smells into the, into the region. So there's going to be fewer animals, um, but it's going to be so much more interesting because you will control the surrounding wilderness. So when I'm thinking about a siege at the end of the campaign, it's not just the building itself. It's also the lands around where you can be digging pit traps and stuff, assuming you have enough time to, to prepare. That's good. I like that. Uh, the idea that you're still protecting, like you're, you're setting up protection for you, not just from the people, but from the wilderness itself. Yeah. Or you're hunting. Uh, what's the next one we have? So the next one is the fortified tower. So my first thought about the kind of people that you'll run into with a fortified tower is that you don't typically build a fortified anything unless you need fortifications. So I feel like this is where you're going to meet other adventurers. You're going to meet people looking for a safe place to rest. Uh, People that are, you know, looking for a night out of the wilderness in a place that is not necessarily safe. So this is where you meet the monk from the rival monastery traveling through the lands. This is where you meet, you know, other bands of adventurers because they're looking for, you know, they're traveling the road that's as dangerous as it is. Otherwise you wouldn't build a fortified tower and they knock on the door and say, Hey, um, can we crash here for the night? And then you get stories and you get potentially a rival group that can be added to your campaign. Nice. For mine, it's the idea of it's a fortified tower. And so it's focused on defense and so if when the, while the characters are running this fortified tower, they all gain the benefit of the fighting style defense, which simply put, they get a plus one to AC while wearing armor. I think that's fantastic. Also, yep. it gives them the ability to dig into armor a little bit more um, yep. because they'll be able to get a long rest and they can take it off without worrying so much about sleeping in it like they would in the middle of a dungeon or an encampment in the middle of the woods right so exactly yeah it's also simple easy to understand easy to quantify we get more armor class when we're home yeah now i was thinking about the best fortified towers that i've seen in um in media and i mean clearly it's lord of the rings 
Um, and I'm not going to talk about Mordor because that's really just a massive dungeon that goes up into the sky. But um, Saruman's Tower uh, in Orthanc is a phenomenal example of, it has that perimeter ring around it. And there are all of these like, cleared out areas so that when he's standing on his balcony, he can see all of this domain. Mm. It doesn't have to be a wizard's tower. Whenever we think about towers in D&D, we think wizards. But the reason the towers exist is for sight lines in reality. And so these are often watchtowers or signal towers, right? A lighthouse is a kind of tower. So you're there for visibility to be able to see things, usually as a, to either warn someone or to see something um, that's dangerous in the distance. So I would think about the idea that your tower is a beacon that people can see. If you light candles in the, you don't even have to have a spotlight. If you just light candles, anybody in a 10 mile radius is going to be able to see it. Not only that, but I've, I've been in a, a couple towers before and I can tell you now the acoustics in there are amazing. <laughs> so and bards so, will be in there too. Yeah. Oh, exactly. But just the fact is you'll be able to be heard. Not only can you see it, but you'll be able to be heard up there as well. Yeah. I, I like the idea that you become a very obvious presence, especially if you have rebuilt a tower that has previously fallen. And now that tower is back. That is a symbol to everybody around that this land now is claimed. And this is a place to go or a place to avoid if you're the enemy. Suddenly, I want to build a campaign around giving players a lighthouse. Yeah, that like it sounds like a lot of fun, although everybody knows that ends with a crack and crawling up the outside of it. <laughs> well, sure, but that's even more fun to play, <laughs> to give your, your players the meta knowledge from session one. This is probably going to end in a kraken. Yeah. <laughs> and just fuck with them the entire way through. No, just, and then what it actually is is rather than a kraken coming up a tower it's the tower cracks oh yep. it was the tower cracking oh yep. um what's next on the list tyler <laughs> the next is the noble estate with the manor i struggled with this one for a moment to try to frame this in a way that would work for adventurers but i think a noble estate with a man manor you're going to get attention from local towns you're going to get people trying to sell you high quality things because they assume you have the money for it. Um, you're going to have farmers and traders bringing out the best stuff they have, trying to, trying to push it on you. Um, that's the first thing I could come up with. There are a couple of skills in 3.5 that I think would be helpful to think about now. Um, when you're dealing with a noble estate um, or a manor or a mansion, if you're talking about nobility at all, there are um, these skills that we don't have anymore. They got wrapped up into other things. Uh, one is gather information because people will come to you with what's happening in the surrounding city and the surrounding lands. Another one is appraise. You're rich. People will, like you're rubbing elbows with the wealthy. So you will get kind of an idea about um, how much is this jewelry? Is that dress? Is this banquet? Is this buffet, right? How much is it actually worth? How much does this cost? And the last one is diplomacy, because you're no longer, you know, scruffy sewer um, explorers anymore. You are now nobility that you're new money, but you're still money, right? I remember using these in 3.5. I really miss some of the skills. Gather information is the one that I miss the most. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think they're all worth thinking about because you can have mechanical bonuses to stuff if you start to think outside the box when it comes to things 
um, uh, like the skills. And that's actually what I was thinking of with this is because we don't have those skills, again, it's just going to be based off of you'd have a plus one to, again, based on wherever city you are, what's more pervasive, either plus one to charisma based checks or plus one to wisdom based checks. This idea of like gather information, which is intelligence, you'd have a plus one to these checks when you're within the city because you are a prominent figure. You have, you built an estate. People know who you are. And so your ability to collect information is that much higher. The thing that I'm thinking about when it comes to an estate is the idea that you have land, you have acreage now, right? And when I'm thinking about that, my problem with a lot of this stuff is, sure, you guys get a wizard's tower. This is fantastic. The fuck does a barbarian get from a wizard's tower, right? But when you start to get land, specifically like with a estate or uh, the castles and whatnot, you can actually spread out so your players can all be within the same, you know, couple of square miles and have their own structures and get their own bonuses and work together uh, in different ways. And this lets them each kind of spread their own wings a little bit um, and have a, a lot more of a unique impact on these surrounding civilization because you don't just have nobles living out in the middle of nowhere. There are rich neighborhoods that are surrounded by middle class neighborhoods that are surrounded by poor neighborhoods. There are business districts in the middle of that. And then beyond it all is farmland, right? Your nobles are in a certain amount of, um, I don't want to say suburbia, but they're very much in a, in a civilized settled location when they get a, a mansion like this. So what does that, that impact? If suddenly the wizard is blowing off spells, um, in the corner of this estate, uh, you know, on a six-story tower. What is that going to do to the neighboring? Like, is this going to drive the prices of the neighborhood down? Are all the other nobles going to be pissed at you? <laughs> the Manor Owners Association starts to file complaints. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but at, on the other side of things, you could have the um, College of Eloquence Bard right. holding lunches for other nobles to come and talk with people. And that's going to um, give you favorable bonuses as well. So you really do have to think about who your party is, what they're going to want out of this land, um, who's going to claim the mansion part of the land. The druid's not going to live in a mansion. He's going to no. live in the, the, the edge maze. Yeah, <laughs> right. So um, it's it's worth it to think about. Um, this one specifically is a little bit. It's a little bit more interesting. You got to start looking at it. A party member by party member. Yeah. To to go back a little bit, and you you said you don't find a, a noble's manor in the middle of nowhere. Do you know what you call a noble's manor in the middle of nowhere? What? A plot hook. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this manor in the middle of fucking nowhere? This fair. doesn't make sense. Yeah, that that that's fair. So the next one we have up is the abbey. Mentioning the Abbey after the Noble Estate kind of made me think of something else that I don't think we've talked about much yet, which is the potential for a stronghold to be a source of income for your group. Abbeys traditionally are known to be places that produce beer, that make cheese, that scribe and copy rare texts, that uh, trade in their skills. So if you're going to run an Abbey, 
you're potentially going to be able, this is, if you've ever wanted to play out the fantasy of having the, the, you know, the D and D brewery, this is where you do it. You potentially get access to hire the most skilled brewer on the entire continent. You know, you can bring in someone with a, a, a rare trade as an income source for your group. So instead of a money sink, this can also potentially be something that is lining their pockets if they manage it correctly. Yeah, we haven't really seen this since the trading post of the guild hall, right? Like this is the the first actual like big expenditure that will pay off dividends. Right. That's good. One I have, and I'm going from the traditional sense of what an abbey is, as like a monastery or where monks or where clergy members come and pray. And so I like this idea of everyone in the party while they're traveling. Uh, They have these people that are praying for them or just in the thoughts, everyone gets the benefit of the spell bless once per short rest. This is while the abbey is active. So the the party doesn't need to be at the abbey. It's while they're off adventuring, but once, once per short rest, they have the bless spell kind of enacted on them. I like that. I really like that as well. That's, that's um, useful without being game breaking. Exactly, yeah. And that's what we kind of have to do here is we have to start thinking of things that are going to get the players involved that is not game-breaking. And the Bless spell is useful all the way into Tier 4. That spell is never a joke, ever. You, when you, ever, you just need that little extra push, just a little extra. When I'm looking at an Abbey, I, it's funny, I went the same route that, that Jeff did because of the... Um, I was thinking about a vineyard or a small mill behind um, the abbey that monks would run. Uh, do you guys know the difference between monks and friars? Uh, friar is a traveling monk. Or it's a, travel, a traveling priest. What did you say, Jeff? I said their hairline. Yeah, that's what I thought you said. <laughs> Look. Um, so the actual definition is that friars um, belong to a religious order, uh, specifically the Catholic Church. Um Monks can be uh, almost any religion or denomination, Um, but the biggest difference is that a friar lives and works among regular people in society, while a monk lives in a secluded, self-sufficient group of monks. The idea of there being friars that live in an abbey that go into town and work there and bring their wares is very much what Jeff is, is talking about, whereas, Tyler, you're very much talking about monks right, who are just a little bit more secluded and people have to come to them, mm-hmm. right, uh, as opposed to them going off into uh, into the, the township. The town. Yeah. And so when I was thinking about how this impacts the surrounding area, I think that friars have a very, very good reputation with the local town folk. Monks have an almost mystical reputation because people don't interact with them as often. There are the people that bring them their bread and cheese twice a week. Right. And then other than that, you have to seek them out and they may or may not entertain an audience with you, uh, depending on your reputation or your needs or whatnot. Also, is this where we're where we're getting um, our orphanage? Yes, I think this would be qualifying as more so that orphanage because it did evolve out of it. If we if you look into history, it so evolved from abbeys to orphanages. So this yeah. is where we get the child army. Got it. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're just going to dress them in, in goblin armor and send them on out. Give them all rifles. <laughs> we're going to move on, Tyler. 
I have only bad things to say. Let's let's move. (laughs) (laughs) The next one is the keep or the small castle. Small castle, not sound castle. Yep. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, so for a keep or a small castle, I think you're going to attract potentially. You're going to attract skilled warriors that may want to work for you. Um, You know, a lot of these different types of strongholds, you're probably going to want to hire guards regardless. But, you know, some kind of a keep or a castle may attract better ones than just you having to go out and find people that will hold a shield and a sword for you at your gate. Uh, But this, you know, this may bring in some some better help than you'll find in some of the lesser strongholds. Okay. No, yeah, I like that. And the idea that you now have guards that rather than just hired goons, they are guards. As well with that, which could also go with the, you know, the noble estate thing too, is you're going to get more attention from neighboring lords if you have a keep. That's true. Could be good attention, could be bad. Oh, yeah. I like this idea. I I like giving my characters either benefits or advantage on checks. So the idea that with a keep or a small castle, you've gained renown in this area. So I like this idea of you gain advantage on all charisma-based checks in the same city as this keep or small castle or in this small region. You have advantage on the uh, anything that is to do with talking with other people. Again, this is encouraging the idea of the social aspect of D&D. Adam, you muted. Yeah, uh, sorry. I got totally fucking distracted because of what you were talking about, um, Jeff. The one-eighth. Uh, CR one eighth will get you a guard, right? Right. CR half will get you a soldier, and I and I think that's the difference between the guard at the you know guild hall and the guard at a small castle. Also, the potential to be able to hire one veteran to lead all your guards. Yeah, you're starting to look at a little bit of the the hierarchy again. If your players want to dig into this level of shit, right? Right. Um, at this point, you're you're playing Sim City to a certain degree. Um, which is, I mean, that's fine, but it's not for everybody. So keep, so keep that in mind. What button? Torn- to tornadoes on a tornado. <laughs> you guys both are just. <laughs> so the thing that I'm looking at when it comes to a keep or small castle is that there has to be a supporting economy outside of it, right? There's no, there's no castle in the middle of nowhere unless it has been destroyed. And if you build it back up, the economy will come because it is, again, this is a landmark. So that's how I get my serfs. That's this is how you get your serfs. Yeah. Got it. So you can expect things like a market square or farmlands or a port. There's usually a reason why this castle is here. And one of those is uh reasons is natural defenses as well. Um, or the fact that it was originally an outpost that was then getting threatened, and then it became a fort, and then it became a keep. And then it became a small castle and there are city walls. And this is where we start to see more of a, a city now, as opposed to everything else up to this point could have been a town or even a village for things like guild halls and trading posts. So also, we're getting, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, I was go gonna ahead. Say, de- depending on the duration and nature of your campaign, there's also nothing saying that you don't start with a guild hall and end up with a small castle. I was actually just going to talk about that too. This idea, can we upgrade? Or does he have to build a whole new whole new thing? Or can you just upgrade it? I think that I think that honestly, I would allow you to sell off one to get the other. Um, for example, you're not going to start off with a fortified tower 
and end up with a small castle. If you wanted to build a castle where the tower is and you build it off of the tower, and I would just let you knock 10% off of the price because you already have a tower built, right? So it depends on the on the situation. But again, is the tower itself in a location that is easily defensible? Are you going to be able to farm nearby? Because a castle has staff. We're talking about guards, but there's also servants. There are also employees. Um, and there are the people that live in the castle. One of Terry's characters um, got married and had a kid and moved into the keep in the at the end of the campaign. And they are happily living there. He would go out adventuring, leaving them behind. They still need food. You still have to be able to feed your NPCs that are there, right? And so there has to be an economy that builds up around it. Um, I thought so, the rule of NPCs is where you forget about them until you need them. I never forget an NPC. I have spreadsheets. <laughs> and if you forget they exist, they will come back. Even if they're dead, there will be... Okay, so again, spoiler for my campaign, because we're, we're doing this so far in advance. My guys sent in like session two, they were level one. They met a grung NPC and it was the only one small enough to go crawl into a hole in a cave to see what happens. So they went down and he, he went into that hole, didn't come out. They went and got him and pulled the bottom half of him out. Something bit off the top half. And they just said, fuck it, we're, we're moving on. Well, um, they're going to find out pretty quickly that that grung was actually a baby slod. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so they never got to that point because this thing got eaten. But um, this is going to be a plot hook that is going to harass them for a few sessions. So um, I never let you forget an NPC. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. So when it comes to a keep or a, or a small castle, I have nothing but plot hooks as far as the eye can see here. Very good. Next up is the temple. So I don't know why this particular topic is just such a brain hurdle for me tonight. Sorry, guys. Uh, so for a temple, temples are known for a handful of things in addition to just dedication to a god. Uh, they can be known for healers. They can be known as keepers of ancient texts. Um, you're potentially going to get a lot of goodwill from the locals, provided it's a god that is inclined towards such a thing. Um, a lot of the, you know, reputation. Um, you can attract paladins and clerics on pilgrimages from across worlds or continents at a temple. Nice. Yeah, the other thing to keep in mind with this as well is that Matt Coyle gives us a concordance system, but there's a piety system that exists in 5th edition. It's mentioned a little bit in the Dungeon Master's Guide, and then it's expanded upon, and you can actually see examples of gods, like in-depth example of gods, and how they interact with the piety system in the mythic Odysseys of Theros. So if you make your temple a home base, sure, your cleric or paladin or whatever is clearly the, the guy in charge of talking to to this God. That's probably why you're at this temple. But if this God is giving legitimate blessings and your other players are like, Hey, you know what? We could really use this guy to come give us a divine intervention right now. They are becoming believers as well. Your barbarian, but Oh, I don't have a religion. Okay, sure. But how often have you relied on the, on the literal blessing of someone else's God in the party? Right. Yeah. So this should apply. And I would say that when it comes to a temple, um, depending on whatever whatever spell or bonus or whatever, the more you actively openly say, yeah, you know what? I'll wear the heraldic sign of this god. I'll, I'll wear the symbol of this god. Um, you may get a better bonus. 
So that rogue in a shadow that's just super edgelord is going to do it every once all the time anyway. And fuck this. And I don't believe in that. And he's not going to get the bonuses. And the only thing he has to do is say, yeah, okay, I believe. That is, that's, that, that has the potential to be not game breaking, but powerful. Now, I, I would have, it should be enough of a little hook to get people to consider this mechanical boon without necessarily going in that direction. By the way, I'm only doing this because this God will show up and need help or be the bad guy or whatever when I'm dealing with level 19 characters, right? Like this is going somewhere. This is the plot. So Adam, uh, Matt Colville wrote a piety system. What I'd really like to see him do is write a pie eating system. A pie eating system? Yep. I I have a, a general complaint about fifth edition and that is the fact that while we do have a chef feet there's nothing really about food other than like good berries anywhere in this there's i i want i wanted to make a food mage at one point where like i cast meatball right like there was a lot of fun that i was doing that i was i was just reflavoring pardon the pun you and i have talked about this before adam (laughs) yeah and All, all of the food related homebrew i've ever done even if it's just something as simple as coming up with an interesting menu at a tavern all of the food-based homebrew I've ever done has been eaten up by my players every time. Pun intended. Yep. Good job. The idea that I have here, have you guys, heard, do you guys know of the the uh, clerics, I guess you could say skill, divine intervention? Yep. This this whole idea of at 10th uh, level, they get the ability to, you roll percentile dice. If it's 10% or lower, plus I think it's your clerical level, if you succeed, you have intervention from your god. What if they spent time praying at this temple and improved those odds? And like so, an advantage roll? Well, more so what I was thinking is for every 12 hours that they spend in continuous prayer, they get they add 5% onto that percentage roll. Now, keep keeping in mind, if they pray for 24 hours, they're going to get one level of exhaustion. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the time sink be, I, I would scale it down a bit. I would say yeah, if they pray for eight hours, 12 hours, eight hours then. Well, I was thinking that if they pray for a short rest and I do it by rests, right? Okay. So um, if they spend a short rest, um, then they would get plus 1%. If it's a long rest it's plus three. If it's a day in, you know, quiet, quiet contemplation. And this allows you to sleep and to have other conversations and stuff as well. Um, then they would get, you know, the 5%. And I, and I would do it that way. And it stacks up to a certain, up to, um, you can do a number of days equal to your proficiency modifier. Something like that, right? If I'm going to gamify it. This, this is true, but this is also why why I like the idea of the continue, if they want to do the continuous prayer route that after 24 hours, they get one level of exhaustion. It's that, because uh, after 24 hours, it'll be at an extra 10%, 36 hours, 15%, 48 hours is 20% up. So they have a possibility of having at 30%, if they roll under 30% or plus their clerical level, like that's a, it's a good chance, but it's a trade-off. You're going to get levels of exhaustion for this. I, I like this idea of it's a gamble. I think that that's really, really interesting to do. I would have to hammer out the mechanics of it based on how likely my players are to dig into it. Um, so I think it would be later campaign type thing. I've played with a couple of clerics in my um, campaigns, and only one of them was even remotely interested in anything like prayer. Other than that, they were just spiritual weapon, spirit guardians, 
I'm going to go over there here and cast cure wounds. And it was, it was just about spells. They just wanted that spell list, right? Meanwhile, uh, bolt. Yeah. Meanwhile, myself, the staunch agnostic has written funeral rites from a cleric of the Raven Queen that I played. Yeah. And like, and here I am writing like literal multi-page Bibles, right? And I, <laughs> I, I just cannot get them to pay attention. Anyway, um, as far as uh, as far as the temple goes for me, one of the things that I'm thinking about the impact on the surroundings, you should have a cemetery nearby. Like Jeff said, right? Funeral rites. There will be funerary um, uh, rituals and whatnot that happen. So a thing like a crypt or a series of uh, monuments, there will be statuaries, but it should all be calm surroundings. Uh, maybe a large gathering place outside where they can put tents up to have people come in and have little meetings um, of like the community has all come together. I would really treat a temple with the kind of um, like a temple is a stand in for a church in a lot of ways as well. Uh, so I'm thinking about what kind of things happen there. It's not just a shrine. As a matter of fact, if I'm going to look at some things like Catholicism, there are multiple areas that you could call shrines within the church, right? So it's bigger than that. Like this temple can be as big as a cathedral. And with all that in mind, I'm thinking about there's a certain amount of, um, of what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I, I almost want to say pomp. Like there's there's so much um, uh, showmanship given to temples as well, where there are beautifully crafted statues and stained glass windows and stuff. And it's, it's not necessarily a, a pride thing or a, 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 it is about displaying the piety towards whatever the God is, or it doesn't have to be one God. It can be a pantheon as well. Like we could say that for D and D is, is, I mean, if it's an elven temple, it could be the elven gods, right? It's the idea of you're trying to gather the sense of awe. Yeah. And that's when you have a temple there, you're going to have people on pilgrimages, right? You're going to have people that come and visit. Um, I think you said this before, Jeff. Yep. Uh, which means you're going to have like road markers that lead people to the temple. You may want to hide your fort out in the woods. You may want to um, have a certain amount of uh, like others, a drawbridge with a giant portcullis for your small castle. The temple is welcoming and it allows people in. But remember, you look at these medieval castles and, and uh, or churches and temples and whatnot with the narrow windows and the thick stone walls and the heavy wooden doors. These were also places of refuge. Yeah, I was going to say the uh, the temple for the war clerics god is going to look a lot different than the uh, temple of uh, Soon or Selun. Yeah, um, and I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. You could look at the different um, cleric domains as kind of, well, whatever cleric is in your party or paladin and figure out is, if I don't have a cleric, if I've got a paladin, um, are they going to have a, like the the oath of vengeance versus the oath of devotion if this is a temple to the warlocks patron That's what I'm thinking too, yeah. right or to the to the gods that the druid maybe they've grown their temple out of trees there are enough um elves and things that will do shit like that in dnd why did my my brain when you said what if the temple was grown my brain auto completed out of tentacles because you said cultists right before that. Yeah, okay, so, <laughs> all right. Now I'm totally going to do that in an aberration campaign. That is yep, just yep. phenomenal. 
Oh, oh I, was, I don't uh, want to be on that one. I didn't want to interrupt you in the beginning what you were saying, Adam, but uh, if you do have an, like an, a large cemetery, you'll also find the necromancer pitching a tent outside too. <laughs> yeah. So the next one on that note is, is the palace and large castle. So a large castle or a palace is going to draw a lot of attention. You're going to be rubbing elbows with influential lords and ladies. You're going to have potentially courtiers dropping by. And like we've mentioned merchants and trade in several of these other strongholds, but with a palace or a large castle, this isn't a guy that wants to sell you a magic ring out of the bag on his back. This is a guy that is like trade empires. This is a guy who owns a fleet of ships that's going to approach you and say, hey, I'm trying to fund an expedition. Uh, we have a potential load of silks. Do you want to go halves? Do you want to make a whole bunch of money? Um, this is a whole different level of fucking around with wealth and risk with your and wealth. silky loads. Yep. So you have Adam's favorite. Uh, and potentially also rubbing elbows with heads of state. Uh, depending on the palace that you're running, dwelling in, you could be the head of state. You could be the head of state that's interacting with other kings and queens from other places that potentially are trying to attract you to come visit them and vice versa. That's true. I think we have to mention this as well with the palace and large castle. This is going to be towards mid to late tier four. Yeah. If your characters even get this. And so what I'm thinking is this idea of with pretty much almost a king of their own land with this large castle that they have that I want to say that in their own realm, they have advantage again on all charisma based checks. And there's actually several things. So charisma based checks in the region, they have this game, this style of defense, kind of what we saw previously. And also after a long rest at their palace that it had, they have the effect of hero's feast. I knew you were going to say Heroes Feast. That was the thing that I was just thinking of. I mean, and so, yeah, and I think it could gonna, last like longer than twenty-four hours. I think it could last forty-eight hours, maybe even a week. If you're going to spend a half a million gold and you have the resources to spend half a million gold on a palace, there should be some good benefits for that. Yep, a dental plan. <laughs> um, one of the things now that... we're getting out of the realm of realism. <laughs> um, you know that is very much in in talks in Canada right now about whether or not. Dental plan is going to be covered by our universal health care. That's going to be a major factor in the next election here. So, like, how are you guys doing down there, Jeff? I want to talk about it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> let's let's just say that I actually did some math last month to figure out how much it would actually cost me if I wanted to move over the border. Well, remember, uh, remember, your dollar is worth like 24% more than, yeah. uh, so it'll be cheap to come up. I would need a lot of gold pieces in hand to be able to make that change. A lot. Or, or just start running. Um, the uh, I think the thing to for me to think about when it comes to a palace or a large castle, as far as the surrounding area, is clearly you have a city. Like this is and not a small one. If right. you are a palace, think King's Landing, right? Think um, oh shit, what was it called at the top of a uh, Gondor, right? Like there are there are castles and Minas Tirith. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Jesus. Um, um, Minas Tirith was surrounded by what was it seven levels of city um, it's a wedding cake yeah it, yes um, 
But one of the things that I and that I'm thinking about with both of those is again, you're getting natural defenses because one was up against, you know, they were both built around or on cliffs, right? But I'm really starting to think about in D&D terms, if you cast the same spell for 100 days in a row, it mm-hmm. becomes a permanent spell. If this is a D&D palace or castle, then this is a how long does it take to build, Tyler? You still have that? Yeah, I believe it's 1200 days. 1200 days. So that's almost, that's uh, like almost four years. Well, if it's supervised, if it's not supervised. <laughs> if it's not supervised, yeah. So uh, I'm assuming that for the most part, I think at this point, you're getting this bequeathed to you. So you're Gross. walking into it, right? Yeah. So, um, so you have to wonder what magical defenses are here. And how do you how do you go about it? One of the things that I would love to do is get into building the magical defenses. One of my favorite pieces of lore is that unicorn blood, if mixed with clay, will make something scry proof. So you want to be scry proof? Now you got to kill unicorns. Also, the spell teleportation circle, which by this point you've had for a while, if anybody in your group has it at all, becomes a whole lot more interesting if you have a palace. You can have a room full of permanent teleportation circles in it. It's also really interesting because then you get um, guard rooms and stuff, which would normally be at the front gates, but you have this deep in the belly of the palace as well because you have teleportation circles there. Yep. So um, let's keep the same initiative. I want to go through really, really quickly because we've got to wrap this episode up here pretty quickly. Um, Do you have a plot hook? Uh, Let's all just, I don't know, grab... There are there are nine of them. There are three of us. We'll each grab three. Do you guys? Uh, what's a plot hook that comes up off the top of your head about one of these? So, Jeff, do you have a? So why am I short circuiting? So the first thing that comes to mind for me is a fort on the edge of wild lands. You've got frontier lands. Beyond this fort, only nomads and dangerous creatures. The most well-known hunter of monstrosities has not returned from his most recent hunt, and his family is worried about him. One day his horse returns alone with a note pinned to the saddle. Don't come for me. If you're reading this, I'm dead and the gnolls are coming. Huh. That's not terrifying. Yeah, I like that. That's great for uh, for an outpost fort because you are out in the middle of nowhere. You don't have help, right? The gnolls are coming. Now it's a defense game. Yeah. You don't know how long it's going to be, but you've got some time. How do you defend your, fo- your fort from and, a And you're sending horse. scouts too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Tyler, what do you got? So when I was thinking of a guild hall, I was thinking this is kind of like the first tier. And this idea of it popped into my head of how do campaigns start? And I'm thinking, wait a minute. What if the reason that the, your players all come together, all, the, all the, the player characters, is because they've all been petitioned to build a guild hall? And that's the first five levels of play that they have is building, gathering resources, the gold and the time to build this guild hall. And it's to solve some sort of local problem that's in the region. And I'm not sure which episode we talked about guilds, but it was in the past. And there's a lot of different guilds. It's not all just fighty, fighty, punchy, punchy. There are hunters guilds, but there's also merchants guilds, thieves guilds. So they are building a guild to respond to some sort of local problem that they've petitioned, been petitioned to do. And so it's the first tier. And I think it's a great way, a different way of why everyone's coming together. All right. Sorry, one second, I'm looking it up. The, 
I don't know why I went to this thought, but a long time ago, I read a fantasy book that is far out of print. And I don't even remember the name of the book, but it, <laughs> you, you're saying all kinds of guilds. It was the, the book was about a character who was accidentally teleported to a fantasy world from like our world. And they were told that a magician would come to save them. And they find out he's an engineer. And they're like, yeah, engineers are a certain kind of, mu- of magician. You're a magician. He goes, no, I was a sanitation engineer. <laughs> Isn't that what Brad so- Tyler, it doesn't Brad deal with sanitation shit for a living? As far, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, I worked on a garbage truck, but like the sanit the, the a sanitation guild in a big city is absolutely, you know, we've we've hired you guys to keep the streets clean, literally. I love that. When you start thinking about guilds like unions, you can start to see that there's more than just thieves and oh, hunters yeah. and shit. And of course, there's mage guilds and stuff as well. Just to jump back uh tyler we talked about it on the campaign builder we talked a lot about guilds but we devoted one episode it was episode four of the campaign builder which was titled guilds right so that's that one you can head there but we talk about how a guild interacts with surrounding cities and different plot hooks and whatnot you can get um through that series so if you're kind of looking in that direction that's a that's a good resource um for me i was looking at the trading post and look there's going to be thieves, there's going to be bandits, and there's going to be trade routes that need to be protected. Part of the idea of um, running a trading post, even if it's in a village or whatnot, is the fact that people have to get here with wares. It is not simply enough to run the, um, the location itself. You've got to think about running the roads in and out of, for the trading post. Or the rivers, if there's if it, you're you know at the docks, so this is something to to think about. I would very much have bandits or pirates or something be a consistent threat that needs to be dealt with, uh, and for some whatever reason, they will be getting more and more powerful as you become more and more powerful until it's time to go stomp them out at the end of uh, tier two. Yeah, I like that. What's another one, Jeff? Uh, t- honestly i'm gonna like the tower just an isolated tower for me was the absolute hardest thing for me to come up with anything for just oh never. really that one that one to me just screams um that there is i mean if you inherit the ruins of the tower right if right. you build it from from the ground up sure but if you inherit the ruins of a tower what magic shit is in there Right, and you can Harry Potter your way through this because there's well, all sorts of accidentally hit the rune, went into this room, didn't realize there was a secret passage. Hey, there's a there's a secret dungeon underneath, right? And towers are perfect for that shit for wizard nonsense. Right. My mind was intentionally trying to avoid the wizard tower thing because I feel like I didn't it didn't even occur to me to have it be taking over an abandoned tower. I was just trying to say, well, Wizard Tower is the obvious place people think of towers in D&D. So what the fuck else could you do with a tower that isn't that? Well, and I, I mean, really started to draw a blank. Uh, honestly, if you're doing that amount of like magical experimentation and whatnot, you need to have spell components. Actually, so- you know what? And I just thought back to earlier, you mentioned um, a tower potentially being a lighthouse. That's an easy plot hook right there. Um, you need to keep that fire lit. There's a storm coming. You need to keep that fire lit or you're going to have ships piled up on the rocks outside the tower. That actually works real well, especially yeah. for uh, especially for a, a coastal campaign. Yep. Also, if you if you got a watchtower or a, 
One of those towers, like um, they had all the towers in Lord of the Rings so that they could signal across a mountain range, right? From one kingdom to another, right? These signal towers as well. There are all sorts of, of interesting reasons. Shit happens out in the world and you've got to, you have to react to it um, with a, with a non-wizard's tower as well. I feel like a wizard's tower is, um, it looks internally and every other kind of tower looks externally, right? Right. When it comes to plot hooks. Yeah. So when it comes to the noble estate with a manor, I had an idea of, Uh-oh. yes, it's a bad thing. So what if the party is actually being given this manor by the surrounding, the surrounding region? They said, you can have it. You can have this place. However, you need to clear it first of all the ghosts and monsters that reside within. And so this... It suddenly becomes, it's it's almost a break from your campaign and becomes a uh, fun house uh, for like a small mini campaign. Let me tell you something. Currently, right now, I am running um, at the House of Lament, which is the level one to three um, adventure that's in Van Ricken's Guide to Ravenloft. And there are three, the way that works, spoiler alert, if you're ever going to play this, tune out for the next two minutes. Um, there are a number of... Uh, different paths that you can take there are actually three branches you can go down three different people you can contact in a number of seances to go around and do all these little quests and stuff so there goes all the way through it it's not that's not enough for me and my players are level four and so i ramped up the horror so the walls bleed and there's more ghostly combat and it's not just the picture attacks you it's like no the picture comes alive and and tells you the most horrible things from your past and knows your insecurities as it psychically reads you. And then the suit of armor behind you comes alive, right? Like I, I really beefed it up, but that is a perfect example of what you're talking about, Tyler, with the, uh, the noble estate with the manor. You have both death house and house of lament sitting there waiting. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's being given to you. It's the allure of you can have this place. If you clear it out, it's yours. I absolutely love that. Um, my next one that I was looking at was the Abbey. Um, and there are really two kind of plot hooks. I was thinking about it. It's either quests of compassion or quests of knowledge, right? And Abbey is going to have, like like we said before, an orphanage. Um, or maybe there's a small um, vineyard or a business attached to it. Even if it's a small farm that harvests a certain amount of uh, all of the town's corn comes from this Abbey right or potato crop or whatever whatever it is the orphanage the the farm the business is in desperate need of help for whatever reason um this is your quest of compassion right uh and it can be something as simple as one of the orphans uh has someone who is going to foster them the next kingdom over and you now need to escort a a baby for the next week and as you're doing that it becomes more and more clear as people are attacking you this baby is special. Um, would would you say that all the kids here and everything that are at this orphanage would be called children of the corn? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, the other thing is the the idea of the quest of knowledge. When you think about an abbey and you think about the monks and whatnot that are there, um, I, I begin to think about things like ancient lore and local rumors and. Um, patterns that are happening within the community i would go to the abbey to find out the details of i know that there have been a bunch of animal attacks during full moons 
for the last 10 months. The Abbey is where I go to talk to them about it because I'll have insight on it. The Abbey is also where I'm going to go to have curses lifted, especially in, in smaller communities. So these are little um, plot hooks as well. The I would absolutely love to have a room that has had removed curse cast on it 100 days in a row. Oh, and lycanthropes are flocking to you all of the time. This is where oh, the okay. pilgrimages go to. Interesting. What do you have next, Jeff? So for one thing, you dirty, dirty thief, Tyler, stealing my idea. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. My initial thought was, you know, a haunted wing of a decrepit palace. But I decided to come up with another one since you stole my idea. So a large castle. Um, this could potentially be a campaign hinge point late game. You've spent the whole game working for a very powerful emperor or monarch who eventually gifted you this castle and all the lands associated with it. Um, he's given you some story about what happened to the family that ran this castle before you. Um, you bought it. You've been dwelling here and upgrading it and maintaining it for however long until at some point a man in armor shows up at the front gate demanding to speak with the lords of the castle. And he says to you, this was my castle. I was evicted from it. My family built it and I can prove it. And everything the king that gave this castle to you has ever told you has been a lie. And this is your, the good guys were the bad guys all along moment where you can potentially turn everything you thought about the people you've been working for is wrong. And here's the real story. Or turn or, you against the monarch or you have the rogue that says guys uh, guys go, go go back inside i will take care of this <laughs> sure yeah it's still going to put some some doubt yes you handle it right even if the characters just straight up murder the guy they now have doubt in everything that's ever been told to them if you handle it correctly some doubt yeah i have i have doubt in one hand but a deed in another so yeah. <laughs> all he wants is the deed tyler what's your last one so my last one was the temple i like the idea that the characters have to look into this building of some sort of stronghold and i like the idea of forcing them to think about it in the sense that again towards uh tier four even tier three what if they have to build a temple to access the bbeg it's not a matter of they oh we should build a temple to no no they in order to find out which like demiplane this bbeg this big bad evil guy is on in order to find him, they have to build a temple either to him or to the to his direct opposite, and then that person helps them find him. It's this idea of they have to they have to build this temple in order to progress to the next part of the story. Once upon a time, the big bad evil guy had a nemesis, an opposite. All the temples to that god have been wiped off the face of the earth. The only way to gain the wisdom of your big bad's nemesis is to build a temple and worship enough that they will come to your aid. Yeah. There are no more temples to this god. You must build one. I, I like see that's I love that idea. And I, I like the idea as well as uh, of do you guys know about um oh shit, why am I blanking on this? The chained god, Theres Dune, the yeah. chained. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So the idea of you have a God who may like make it a good God because it's your cleric and you, the cleric 
is the only person that hears from this from this God because the God has been lost and now is is communicating again because they've been chained up in whatever underworld or hell dimension or whatever. And you need to build a temple to get to the God to release them behind enemy lines as well. It's not just necessarily going to the big bad evil guy, although that's really cool. It could also be, I need to get to my God as well before, or maybe they're in their palace in, you know, Mount Celestia and you need to get to Mount Celestia. And this is the best way to do it before the incoming armies from the nine hells show up. Right. Like Mm -hmm. uh, I love the idea of there being a planar connection. Yeah, exactly. And they'll obviously give the party sufficient time. Tell them ahead of time that this is what you're going to need to do. Some NPC is going to come up with a reason why you need to do this. And you have this amount of time. And it's going to be a lot of time, but a temple takes a while to build. Yeah, I really, I really like that. The uh, My last one is the um, keep or the small castle. And for the small castle, the palace or large castle, and the temple, they all have one basic thing in common, and that's that they are essentially a pillar of the community, if not the pillar of the surrounding community. And so my plot hook here is your castle's totally fine. Your um, Your keep is not in danger of being breached. But the community around you is suffering now from a plague Mm -hmm. and they are looking to you for guidance. And when an entire neighborhood goes down with the plague, your cleric cannot fix that. Even with high level spells, they can do a certain number of creatures at a time. Right. The paladins lay on hands will help 10 people a day, but there are thousands and thousands of people now. Exactly. So this is where I would, I would look for my level four adventure right? You need to have the divine intervention of a, of a good healing God come in, or you've got to quest to another continent to be able to get the cure, or you need to go make a deal with a devil to be able to cure this, but at what cost, right? So there's all sorts of ideas there. When you are responsible for a population, threaten the population. Is it bad? I'm thinking, get ready for being a level in Warlock. Oh, absolutely. I If I'm going to make that deal, everybody gets a level of Warlock and there's going to be a, a shrine for it. Um, anyways, guys, that's going to, I think, more or less wrap up the uh, this episode. Uh, we've gone pretty long already on this, and it's given me a lot of ideas for uh, plot hooks. One thing that I really would like to look into is what a pirate ship would do if that's your stronghold or or an airship, right? There are some really interesting ideas um, when you, I flip over to the Dungeon Master's Guide and I'm going through what these optional rules are, I also stumbled upon something else that helped me a little bit think about when it comes to a palace or a large castle, um, and I'm not just going to give one single boost to all of my players. I want each player to feel unique. How are they all going to feel unique when they all have one single location that they are they're residing in, right? If they all have the same stronghold, How does it feel unique? And that's the idea of give them separate rooms, separate areas. I mentioned this before a little bit about the um, noble estate with the manor on it and them spreading out a little bit. But when it comes to these bigger, these tier four castles and temples and palaces and whatnot, they can all have different levels. The necromancer can be down in the literal dungeon of the palace, right? Whereas the wizard resides in the Southeast tower, right? And they are all still getting the same boon across the board 
but they all have their own unique extra thing on top of that. But I'm kind of at a loss about what to do. So I started flipping through the DMG and I ran across the idea of um, putting different chambers and connecting areas. There's a portion in the DMG on page 292 called Stocking a Dungeon. And this gives you a number of different chambers and their purposes um, on a whole bunch of D100 tables and D20 tables. So I don't want to go through them all right now because like I say, we're running long. But if you're at a loss about what to put in a palace or a fighter's fortress or a ranger's lodge, if you want to give a bard a theater or a wizard a library, there's some really good stuff in here. Um, The dungeons that they list out, and these are for building a dungeon against your players, but there's no reason that these rooms would not exist um, for the players to be able to uh, keep track of themselves. If you have, for example, a diviner, maybe that diviner um, is around a planar gate that exists in the belly of your palace. And that's where they get their specific powers from. So the dungeons listed there are death trap, which I don't really think is necessarily important. Maybe if you're going to flesh out a dungeon beneath the palace, Um, but there's stuff for layers, mazes, mines, and planar gates. So we're getting the idea already that there's more kind of strongholds than just the ones we've talked about today. Um, And then additionally, there's one for strongholds themselves. And that gives me things to think about that I hadn't thought about before, like a banquet room, an audience chamber, an aviary, dressing room featuring a number of wardrobes, um, a kennel where monsters or trained animals that protect the stronghold are kept. Uh, We can, it gives you information about uh, pantries and sitting rooms and libraries. Latrine. Uh, The latrine is on there, I think. It is. Yep. Um, there's also a temple or shrine, which has a whole lot of options on it, um, including a workshop for repairing or creating weapons, religious items, and tools. So your artificers even have something to do there. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, tombs as well, which would be if you're going to have a uh, mausoleum out back of your temple, uh, treasure vaults, which frankly was where we started this conversation on in the first place. Where are you keeping your hoard? And uh, and then there's just kind of a general dungeon chambers D100 table that include everything from a well to a nursery to a pen or prison, a reception room, a refectory, um, a bestiary, or a game room. Is there anything in particular that you guys would want to add just to wrap this up um, before we cut to our, our last ad break? Is there anything you guys would make sure that you always add to every single kind of stronghold? One particular detail? Make every stronghold haunted. I love that. <laughs> Just even, like, it doesn't have to be a, a, a malicious haunting, but why wouldn't you have a quirky ghost that lives in any stronghold you ever give your players? You're a nearly headless Nick, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Moaning Myrtle. I would say I would want every single stronghold I have to have some sort of sitting room or dining room or something where people can gather. I don't want the characters always to be going just on their own, but I want a place where everyone can gather and you can invite NPCs in. I want that idea that a gathering place. Yeah, and I think I'm going to look at the exact opposite of that as well because it's going to have good synergy with what you just said, Tyler is everyone needs to have their own place that they can put a lock on a door. 
Yeah. So that um, if you stay in a tavern, you tend to bunk up two to five people into a room sometimes. But when you go home, you want your own space, right? And that way the fighter can have his wardrobe with the four different kinds of magic armor that he's got over in the corner and not worry about the sorcerer accidentally blowing it up. Agreed. Absolutely. All right, let's cut to, uh, to an ad break before we wrap this up. If you've been inspired by the conversation in this episode, please feel free to reach out and share your creativity and ideas with us and the rest of the community. You can reach us on Facebook and Instagram or on our subreddit r slash it's a mimic. Also, if you're feeling particularly generous, please follow and subscribe and leave us positive reviews, likes, and comments. Engagements like that help us pop up on search engines and keep this show running. One thing to keep in mind, guys, is that D&D is a game that everyone is playing at your tables. So DMs, work with your players when building their stronghold. Get their input, their personal flair. Get them to give details of what this place looks like and every what every single room looks like. It's their stronghold. Let them make it their own so that they'll be compelled to use their stronghold or to give you the DM inspiration for plot points and possible blowing up rooms. Players, make it your own. Be creative and please remember this resource as it can be a great boon in your campaign. Only if you use it though. If you don't use it, you lose it. So that's all for our discussion on building strongholds in D&D 5th edition. Make sure that you subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be returning to Spelljammer to discuss the other three playable races that can be found there. Thank you for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com, a store with some It's a Mimic merch, and a Patreon. This episode and others can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and most other podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Please check the show notes for this episode to see links, time codes, and credits. And don't forget to reach out and share your own inspirations. Regarding the Spelljammer thing that's there, have you recorded any Spelljammer stuff yet? No, this is the first one that we've recorded yet. Spelljammer is a fucking mess. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I would, it would, I would have, it would have been ugly if you guys had already recorded that stuff right before they retconned all that shit. Yeah, it's actually um, uh, going to be addressed uh, in the episode. I have gone back and rewritten that um, that fucking breakdown twice now. And I'm yeah. going to have to do it again because they're, cool. it is just gnarly. Wizards Trash dropped fire. the fucking ball so hard. Anyway. Can I, can I show one of the ideas that I had? Yeah. What? This, no. this got me laughing hysterically. It's, it's the antechamber. And the advantage would be the... Oh, <laughs> no. no. It's the artificer. He gains the ability to... Uh, Whenever someone is entering or leaving, he's able to cast prestidigitation. And what this looks okay. like is is many, many, many small little robots go and scrub every inch of every person that's coming in. 
my mind when you said antechamber went completely in a different direction it went to the a-n-t-i antechamber oh it's just a sphere of annihilation (laughs) or just it has an an anti-magic presence like you walk through it and it shuts off all your magical effects (laughs) i like the idea of the antechamber that just has a big sign on the door that says no uncles <laughs> See, now you need three antechambers. <laughs> this is why we need a palace. <laughs> Which one do I want to enter today? Well, you, you're 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 at the palace for an audience before the lords of the place. You get to choose you know, you honored guest may choose which of the three antechambers you will enter the audience room through. But you don't tell them anything about what's in any of the three of them. Oh, boy. One is full of cleaning robots. One shuts off all your magical shit. And the other one just has a bunch of anties in it. <laughs> They're hags. They're hags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fuck. Take that whip down. Was there anything else specific you were looking for from me, Adam, on that one? He muted himself. I, I am sitting here babbling away, not realizing I'm on mute. God damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take two. Um, my brain just shut off. It's the Windows reboot noise right now in your head? Yep, pretty much. Just like crashed mid-thought. Fuck. <laughs> this train of thought is still boarding at the station. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I fully derailed on that one. God damn it. <laughs> my notes are not relevant to this, unfortunately, for this particular one. So ugly. <laughs>